Support for this podcast is provided by the Florence County Museum, presenting legend Francis Marion in the PD. The exhibit explores how 19th century art depicting Marion and his militia contributed to the Swamp Fox's legend in early American independence. Now on exhibit, flocomuseum.org. From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter Edgar's Journal. I'm Walter Edgar, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast series about South Carolina culture and history with a nod to all things Southern. I'll be joined today by my producer and co-host, Alfred Turner. This is our fifth Friday edition for the month of June 2023. And with Independence Day just ahead, we thought it appropriate to look back on the Revolutionary War, focusing on some key battles and how they might well have been lost by American patriots and therefore have changed the course of the war. Our guest, Bob Thompson, will tell us about some of those battles and about how he put 20,000 miles on his car in order to walk revolutionary battlefields doing research for his book, Revolutionary Roads, searching for the war that made America independent and all of the places it could have gone terribly wrong. Bob, let's talk about why you decided to write a book called Revolutionary Roads and Walk the Ground Yourself. Uh, First of all, I'm very glad to be here, and I'm also glad to have survived my trips. I decided to do something that was, in retrospect, unwise, because walking the ground of the whole Revolutionary War, or the most important parts of it, I was biting off more than I can chew. But I did it because I had done a previous book where I had walked the ground of a historical uh, situation, and I really liked doing it. And I really liked the part where I was guided by people who knew a whole lot more than I did as part of the process. Okay, that earlier ground you were talking about, West Tennessee, when you did your book on Davy Crockett, right? Yeah, East Tennessee, West Tennessee, and Texas. And with a stint up in uh, Lowell, Massachusetts, which I did not know Davy had ever been to before I started but that's a different book. Well, we're talking about walking the battlegrounds of the American Revolution, and actually it's something that uh, some historians literally for centuries had wanted to. The Greek historian said you should walk the battleground, but it took other historians till we get to the 19th century American people like George Bancroft and Francis Parkman who believed that they should walk the battlefield. They obviously did not walk all of them because uh, – they did not talk too much about the American Revolution in the South, but they sure walked up and down Bunker Hill as many times as they could. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, it's a great way. It's a great way to understand things because there's things that you see uh, that you just wouldn't you, you wouldn't know um, otherwise. Well, obviously, there are lots of battles that we could talk about, but one it has always fascinated me. Let's t- let's talk something about Saratoga because it's a battle that has been cussed and discussed. Was Benedict Arnold the hero? Was Horatio Gates, who later became Granny Gates in South Carolina? What's your take on Saratoga? Because that really was a lot of walking, and it was more than just one battle. Yes, 
I had a wonderful guide. We walked the battlefield. The battles were roughly on the same ground. So he did a tour in which we did the first battle, and then we walked back and talked about the second battle. Um, my guide was, he told me in advance, not a Benedict Arnold fan. And I'm not just talking about the treachery, which came later. Uh, but he did not believe that Arnold had won the Battle of Saratoga uh, all by himself. So that was very educational for me because I had started out thinking that Arnold was the most important figure in that battle. And by the way, with my studying the American Revolution, uh, there were more people who were pro Arnold than uh, Horatio Gates. I guess Gates really uh, tore his pants in South Carolina. So, but as as you well know, history is framed by later events, and in Arnold's case, it's framed by the treason, and so. Everybody was willing to believe that he behaved badly at Saratoga because he was a he was a traitorous scumbag. And in Gates's case, as you also well know, he did not perform well in the South and compounded his error by fleeing the battlefield. And and so his previous heroism is greatly, if it was, is greatly diminished by that. The very smart people, I talked to very smart people about Saratoga, and it ended up being a little bit of a draw between Arnold being important, Arnold more important in the first battle, Gates in the second battle. And there was a discovery made while I was reporting of a, of a letter that changed the view of Gates and Arnold in the second battle, which made them both look better and which undercut the negativity about Arnold in that battle. It was, to me, an amazing example of something that happened in the 21st century that changed the interpretation of what was obviously a very important victory. And what would be that 21st century incident? Well, a letter was discovered in which the the, the background is is that Arnold was said to be basically benched for the second battle. He'd, he'd gotten into a fight with Gates, which is true. And the idea was that he was back at camp and with no command and that he charged out onto the battlefield and did stuff it, despite that. The letter, which is from a reliable letter writer who'd written another letter, is said it talked about Arnold and Gates cooperating and and. Gates having sent Arnold out to do what he did in the battle. And that just that that doesn't change the interpretation of the battle as much as it changes the interpretation of Arnold's role in it and makes it more important. Okay, let's go to the other side because what Burgoyne, General Burgoyne, the British general, had in mind, as you as you lay out, he had a three pronged plan to basically cut off New England from the rest of the colonies. And by the time he was marching south from Canada with his mistress and his carts of wine and and tents and all of that, he was down to one prong, wasn't he? Uh, He had two prongs for a while. The third prong never materialized because that was supposed to be General Howe sending troops up from New York. And Howe decided to, on his own, to invade Philadelphia instead. There was not very good communication, and there wasn't very good coordination by the powers that be in London. I'm just going to say, sitting here in the bleachers, 
hearing you say, well, he just decided instead he'd go capture Philadelphia. That just was this an unusual occurrence for someone in command of a group of soldiers to say, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. Um, well, he there's there's complications about whether and when he communicated this and uh, whether he might finish taking Philadelphia and still be in time to help. Mm. But the short version was he was very slow. He didn't get started until late, and he was in no position to help with that campaign. Okay. Um, and, you know, they were uh, competing generals, and their boss was in London. So it was a remarkable oversight, however. I mean, it was, it was a stupid <laughs> thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, let's, let's, let's get back to Burgoyne, because Saratoga, like almost every battle, it doesn't go according to plan. And uh, it's almost like chaos theory. A little something happens, and that changes the whole scheme of events. Well, one of the things that happened with Burgoyne happened before the battle as he was slowed down in ways that he hadn't expected. He should have been in Albany, which was which was his initial goal, well before the battle, but stuff happened and he didn't he didn't get going in time. In the battle itself, he didn't really know where the left wing of the American army was. So he sent his troops out and there was a problem in communication between him and his right wing under General Fraser. And they they just didn't coordinate. I don't know whether that's what you're thinking of in terms of the of the one thing, but there were a lot of problems on Burgoyne's end of the whole invasion. You walked the battleground. Describe what it looks like today. It is a beautifully preserved battlefield park. It's it's one of my favorites of the big ones. It's 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 really well preserved. What it looks like is sort of rolling countryside divided by deep ravines and gates. He had chosen a very good defensive position. So for the British to attack him, the really the only way they could do it because of the ravines and the, and the nature of the, of the defenses was to come around the British right, the American left. And they didn't, as I said, they didn't quite know where the American left was and they never got there. Meanwhile, Benedict Arnold, aggressive general that he was, sent his half of the army. He controlled half the army. And he sent them out to confront them before they got around with their cannon to, to attack the defenses. I think it was Arnold's move that day with some reluctance from Gates. Gates wasn't sure he wanted to do that, but he let him do it. And that, that changed the equation because they fought the battle farther out, that, that farther away from the defenses than was expected. Benedict Arnold was wont to say that the brutal murder of a young American woman in New York had a lot to do with the rising of the militia on the Patriot side. She was scalped by Native American allies of the... Uh, uh, that is true, that, that she was killed, and it was a very unfortunate incident. Eric Schnitzer, who's the very knowledgeable park historian at, at Saratoga, does not think that that incident had anything to do with what happened in the battles. And he explains this by saying that 
militia in New England, which may have been a little different than the partisans in the South, but militia in New England didn't go anywhere without orders from local governments. And the local governments in New England were withholding their militia because they thought Burgoyne was maybe just going to come across directly into New England. And as soon as Burgoyne crossed the Hudson, uh, they knew that he wasn't doing that. And so they released their militia, who got there in time to be pretty helpful in the second battle. None of this had any anything to do with the poor young woman. Yeah, Jane, and Jane McRae. Jane, Jane McRae, yes. And that has come down to us in history because Gates used her killing as propaganda. So there's some of that around. And it just became one of those stories. And the most influential person in popularizing that story was Kenneth Roberts, the well-known historical novelist in the in the mid-20th century, who made that a very big part of the story. And it, it's just one of those things that didn't really happen the way we think it happened. Yes, history does get changed over over time, and emotional propaganda, as as this was in New England, of course, we came to down in the South when you got to Bannister Tarleton, Bloody Man. Yes, propaganda, which the British even talked about it being propaganda. I mean, Cornwallis is he's he's so upset. He said, "I can't believe all the lies they're saying." Well, now, what what was the main lie that was out? Or were there more? There was more than one. I take it. Oh well, oh, there were lies on both sides. Yeah. Oh. Um, the the most important, whatever you want to call it, the most important impact on the rising in South Carolina was the Battle of the Waxhaws, which was a terrifically one sided British victory by Charleston, who was pursuing some Continentals who were trying to get back into North Carolina after Charleston fell. And the story of that battle is that the American commander made a terrific mistake, which was he lined his men up in a defensive position and ordered them not to fire until the cavalry, I've forgotten the exact distance, but the charging uh, British cavalry were, you know, 100 feet away or something because they'd, they'd been ordered to hold their fire, which is something that might work with infantry. So that did not deter the cavalry at all. They smashed into the defenses, and it became a brutal battle. The propaganda question, I know, I'm not sure whether the word, I mean, I, I literally don't know whether prop, the word propaganda had been invented at that time. I'm well, it, 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 it may not have been, but that was clearly the, yeah. the it's inference. What, it, it's what happened. The... the the feeling on the American side was that Tarleton's men had killed an enormous quantity of the defenders as they were trying to surrender, and very uh, and very brutally. They were uh, unlike portrayed yeah. in several movies where they're shot. They were hacked to death with bayonets and cavalry sabers. Yes, and what I found in trying to figure this out with the help again of someone who had studied it and knew a lot more than I did. And also with the help of a recent book called With Zeal and With Bayonets Only, the name of the author escapes me at the moment, but it's a, it's a really excellent book about the British Army during the war. He says at one point that any time in history when cavalry gets loose among scattered infantry, horrible things happen. 
And I ended up believing that that was the principal thing that had happened, was that the cavalry smashed them, and in the frenzy that resulted, many, many, many men were killed in the manner that you described. But there is also an aspect to it where Tarleton went down, his men thought that he had been killed, and it made them angry. And they most likely killed some people who were trying to surrender. And what I ended up deciding was that we have no way of knowing how many, what the proportions were. But if you were on the Patriot American side in South Carolina and you heard about this battle and you saw the wounded men in the, in the church where they were taken... It was a horrible thing, and it, it changed, the, in my view, and uh, it changed the nature of the, of the partisan war by generating anger and opposition. Well, we, we got to the Waxhaws, and I was going to say I might have used a better segue to because in your book you mentioned you had grown up learning about the revolution in the North, and the Southern campaigns was something new. So your trip down South occupies a fair amount of your book. It does. I credit some books I read in preparation, including yours, and including, I think maybe one of the first I read was Almost a Miracle by uh, John Furling, which made me aware that the South was much more important than I had understood. Um, I didn't know that much about the North either, for that matter, but I certainly didn't understand the South. And I discovered as I did my reporting that many, many, many people even in the South, don't understand how important it was. No, it it it, it things they are changing, but I, I could I can tell you, Bob, it has it has been a hard slog because, as I say, yes. most general history books, Bunker Hill, I mean Lexington Concord, Bunker Hill, Saratoga, Yorktown, the end. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there are even U.S. history books now that w- literally will dismiss the revolution in about a paragraph. I chose to start the book at Cowpens for uh, several reasons, but one of which is I wanted my readers to know right away that it wasn't just the standard, you know, Lexington and Concord, um, Bunker Hill, Trenton, uh, Yorktown. Guess what? That was noted. And that's one reason why you're on the show today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad. Well, I, I put it out there front. I also need to credit one of the reasons I did it. I was thinking about starting with Monk's Corner, which is a much more obscure battle, but also important. What happened with Cowpens was I met a guy named Steve Rausch, who's an Army historian, who had led a hundred staff rides with military guys at at Cowpen, and he offered to take me along as long as I kept my mouth shut. That was just an education that I couldn't pass up. Uh, so that's the second reason that, that I started there yeah. as opposed to, to someplace else in the South. All right. Alfred, do you know what a staff ride is? No. The impression I get from the thing is that you take your general staff on a ride. Uh, go ahead. Enlighten me. Yeah, it's it's a training exercise, and uh, almost no one knows what it is unless you're unless you're military, and even in that case, mostly army. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, the army developed it in the middle of the 19th century, and the reason it's called a staff ride is it was done on horses. Ah, but it's a training exercise in which modern officers are taken on 
old battlefields to find out if there are any lessons from those old battlefields that are still useful to them today. And uh, and I, I call my book a kind of a, a ridiculously um, ambitious staff write of the whole war. But um, I've gotten that question all the time because because and I explain it in the text. But but right. really nobody knows who it is, what what they are. Well, I have to ask. You, you're talking about Calpins now. It was it was a an incredibly decisive battle in the South. Um, yes. And you walked the Calpins battlefield. Now, Walter, correct me if I'm wrong, but they've done some changes to that battlefield to make it more like it was yes. in the day. Yes, when the when the Calpens battlefield first began to be restored as a site, they were treating it like a, a park. People were planting trees and doing all sorts of things to make it beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the last ten or fifteen years, they have tried to recreate the landscape, including planting bamboo canes around a, a marshy area that were cover and also channeled the British troops into the battlefield. So they've tried to make it as much like the 18th century battle site as they can. And less of a Victorian-style it, it, park. It is no longer a Victorian glade. Okay. That, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I think they've done a very, very good job with the physical battlefield. The question of what actually happened there gets a little more complicated. It does, and it's a battle still studied at the Command and General Staff College. When it's discussed, it says this basically was Morgan's plan, and that it unfolded just the way he planned it. Well, no huh. battle really does. Let's go through the Battle of Calpens, since you did start with that. I went a couple of times, actually. I went, I walked it carefully myself, and then I went back with Steve and his his staff ride and listened to what he and and his students were saying. Morgan had a good plan. He had an excellent plan. The heart of his plan was to use the militia of which he had many more than was first thought. He knew that they couldn't stand bayonet charges. He knew that there were things he couldn't ask them to do, and he didn't want to ask them to do what they couldn't do, which seems entirely sensible. And it's surprising that nobody thought of it before. So he he set them up in a line and told them to get off two shots, some people say three, and then retreat in an orderly fashion. And he made clear that they understood what they were to do. And that happened. That worked. It wasn't quite clear that they were going to come back into the battle, but they were they were behind the, the continental lines, and they might. And what happened was the decisive moment in the battle came when there was a mistaken order, a misunderstood order. The, the Tarleton brought up his reserves, and they were charging the Continentals from their flank. And the Continental part of them were ordered to wheel to face the charge. But the heat of battle, a lot of noise, a lot of smoke, a lot of chaos, and they thought they'd been ordered to retreat. And when they started to retreat, the whole rest of the Continental line began to retreat, which was not the plan. That was not Morgan's plan. (laughs) And uh, Morgan and the Continental commander got together and halted them. And meanwhile, the British, who were tired and hungry, but very good fighters, lost their discipline, thought they'd won and charged forward. 
And that's, that's the moment where the battle was lost by the British because they, they were then wiped out by the Continentals and, and the militia came back into the battle. The cavalry came around and, and it, it was, it was no contest at that point. And you mentioned the militia turned around and the cavalry came in. And this is the beginning of the story of Morgan's planned double envelopment of the yes. British. Which, it was which, an accident. Which really was, yes, it was not really his plan. Yes. But, Bob, that's the way it's still taught. Oh, yeah. You, you can read about that on the, battlef- on the, in the battlefield signage. And they refer to a battle in ancient Rome that was a giant parallel. Morgan would never have heard of that battle. And the double envelopment that happened at Calpens was was fortuitous. And then there got to be discussion. Who was the young officer who screwed up and ordered his his men to retreat? There's there's two possibilities. I'm not going to be able to summon the names at the moment because they're they're not really well known. But the crucial point about that, and and you know, if somebody wants to read the book, it's explained better. Is that if that order had been understood properly, those two sections on the end of the continental line would have turned to face the enemy and been rolled up. The, this is, this is a, a, a observation that was made by Jim Pikich, who's a, who's a historian who was very helpful to me in many circumstances. And he says the actual victory was a result of the fact that, that the retreat had been made and the British lost discipline. Well, and the British had had rolled up the line, the militia would never have come back in and the battle would have been a disaster. Well, and, and the Americans were in a better position once they had withdrawn. Yes, yes. Walter, you've read this. I'm, I'll ask you if you're, is this something that, that makes sense to you? Well, it it does. I mean, it's, to me, one of the best books about what happens in battle is Tracy Powers Lee's Miserables about the Civil War. And it's based upon hundreds of letters of these men in the Army of Northern Virginia. And what they do in battle is not exactly what was ordered. And what they're seeing in one place is not seen by somebody in another. And in the confusion of the fog of war, a lot of things happen. And then when it's all over, Somebody wants to take credit for it. Somebody gets the blame for it. Uh, in this case, it was a victory. There was some finger pointing. Well, you should have done this. You should have done that. But hey, Morgan's a hero. He's a military genius. They teach the double envelopment. But I love the way you ended your introduction about cowpens. If we care that the Revolutionary War came out the way it did. However, we might want to dedicate a statue to the unknown dude who screwed up at Cowpens. <laughs> I'm in favor of that. Uh, you could put a few of those statues around. <laughs> I can see the inscription. Here, here is the statue in honor of the unknown dude. That's good. Yeah. The inability for, for people to see a battle whole when they're, when they're in the middle of it is is it's a great point that—, that a lot of people don't understand. Um, I, I learned that in reading about Pickett's Charge for a magazine story I did, where there's a lot of documentation of, of people's memories of Pickett's Charge and what happened. And 
very, very hard to know what's happening three guys away from you. Hmm. We hadn't talked much about you. Let's talk a few minutes about what you do. You're a journalist. You write feature articles. I'm a retired journalist, but when I was working at the Washington Post, I was very, very fortunate in having the freedom to write long feature articles, often on things that I wanted to write about. And Pickett's Charge is an example. Nobody at the Washington Post wanted to write a story, have a story about Pickett's Charge, but I just said, gosh, it's interesting. And this good historian named Carol Reardon has just written a new book, and why don't I go walk the battlefield with her? And they said, sure. That's what I was trying to replicate and was lucky enough to do over and over was to find people like, for instance, Charles Baxley in South Carolina and and Steve Roush at Cowpens and my Saratoga guide, Jim Hudo, and, and many more who, again, knew vastly more than I did and were able to explain it. And I got to decide, you know, if there was stuff that I doubted, I didn't have to put it in. But it was just a tremendous education for me. Well, I'm sorry you didn't have a guide at Kings Mountain. Uh, I am as as well. And did you notice it's the absence? And can you tell me what uh, I might have learned? Well, the one thing you, you might have learned is the cairn there for Ferguson, the British major who was killed. People are not sometimes not just placing a stone on the cairn in Scottish honor. They are throwing stones at the marker that was erected. And you may have seen the marker was somehow yeah. defaced. And this came home to me very bluntly about 10 years ago, I was leading an, an alumni trip for the University of South Carolina, and a number of older folks were on it, and I was prepping them for the walk up the mountain, and I mentioned the Cairn, and these two women who were natives of Spartanburg County, and they must have been uh-huh. in their 70s, and they said, when we were little girls, on the anniversary of the battle, our grandparents and the other members of this little Presbyterian church would go up and throw rocks at Ferguson's marker. Oh. Now, this is early 20th no. century, so the feelings were, st- were still pretty yeah. strong in upcountry South Carolina. Um, yes, and I did hear about that. A volunteer at, at the Cowpens uh, Visitor Center told me about that kind of thing happening. Jack Buchanan, who is, is someone else whose books were very valuable to me, is very good on Ferguson's inflated reputation as a great officer. And that was not the case. <laughs> well, I mean, why on earth did he choose to stop instead of going on into Charlotte to meet up with Cornwallis? Why did he yeah. pick this monoduck? It's called King's Mountain. It's actually a strange rock formation that's isolated. And go on the top of it, there was no way to do any kind of fortification he did circle the wagons literally around his tent where he had his yeah. two female assistants. They both had the same name, which... Uh, Causes confusion. Yes. Um, my own theory, and, and, and this is a theory, not a, not a fact, but my own theory about why he just didn't go to Charlotte is he, as many other people did, he liked having an independent command. And he didn't particularly get along with Cornwallis, who had not chosen him for this job. And he wanted to retain that independent command as long as he could. And 
cost him his life. And actually, his command was to raise the militia in the backcountry of the Carolinas and Georgia. And this was independent of Cornwallis's command. Ferguson had been appointed this by Clinton, I believe. Is that not right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, who didn't like Cornwallis either. I mean, it's uh, just one of those things. And Burgoyne didn't get along. So a battle was, it wasn't the losing a nail in the horse. It was just the guys didn't like <laughs> each other. <laughs> well, we're, we need to start to wrap our conversation up, sad to say. But I, I need to ask, you walked all these battlefields how many miles did you have to travel to do this? I tr- I put twenty thousand miles on my car. Wow! Um, and that doesn't count the walking or or any of that. Um, but that's that's a rough figure. Well, before we wrap up, as you look at the whole scene of the American Revolution, what would be your favorite battle? The one you enjoyed studying the most. I have a number of candidates for that, but I'm going to mention a small battle in upstate New York called Oriskany, and that was the second prong of Burgoyne's campaign, which we don't have time to go into, but Oriskany was a truly horrific small battle between New York State rebel militia on one hand and the prong of Burgoyne's campaign that included uh, many Native Americans. And I had a wonderful guide there. It was raining, which was historically accurate for the battlefield. And we had the the small, beautiful battlefield to ourselves. And she just told me the story. And so I think that's, that's one of my top moments. Well, Bob Thompson, the author of Revolutionary Roads, Searching for the War That Made America Independent, and All the Places It Could Have Gone Terribly Wrong, I want to thank you for being with us today on The Journal. Uh, Thank you, Walter, so much. This has been a great conversation, and I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Traveling 20,000 miles from Saratoga to Kings Mountain and Cowpens. And, as Bob Thompson said and he was singing my music. The two key battles of the revolution were in South Carolina, and they are all important part of our state and our nation's history. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Remember, the views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio or its underwriters. New episodes of Walter Edgar's journal are published on the first and third Fridays of the month and are available at southcarolinapublicradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk again soon.